Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Farfetched Fables. Welcome to show number 27. As usual, I have two fantastic stories for you. So kick back, put your feet up, relax. Let's listen to some stories. First up, we have a tale called Public Safety by Matthew Johnson. Matthew is a writer and educator who lives in Ottawa with his wife and two children. A collection of his short fiction, Irregular Verbs and Other Stories, of which I personally have a copy, was published in 2014 and has received starred reviews in Shelf Awareness and Quill and Choir. His work has been collected in several years' best anthologies and has been translated into Danish, Czech and Russian. While not writing or engaged in full-contact parenting, he writes lessons and blogs, designs award-winning educational games, and occasionally does pirate voices, in both English and French. You can learn more by following the link on our Triple F website. It's read for you today by Nobilis Reed. Nobilis hosts the longest-running erotica podcast in the known universe, Nobilis Erotica. He is also the creative director of Quiver and Arch LLC, a production company that specialises in erotic audio drama. He's also an author in his own right, with stories published by Circlet Press, Kleist Press, Forbidden Fiction and Logical Lust, as well as a number of self-published titles. You can find his website on the Triple F. So, here is Public Safety by Matthew Johnson. Officier de la Paix, Louverture folded Quartidi's paire de chaînes into thirds, fanning himself against the Thermidor heat. The news inside was all bad, anyway. Another theatre had closed, leaving the Comédie Française the only one open in Nouvelle-Orient. At least the Duchesne could be counted on to report only what the Corps told them to, that the Figaro had closed for repairs and not the truth, which was that audiences, 
frightened by the increasing number of fires and other mishaps at the theaters, had stopped coming. The Minerve was harder to control, but the theater owners had been persuaded not to talk to their reporters to avoid a public panic. No matter that these were all clearly accidents, even now, in the year 122, reason was often just a thin layer of ice concealing a pre-revolutionary sea of irrationality. On the table in front of him sat his plate of beignets, untouched. He had wanted them when he had sat down, but the arrival of the group of gardiens stagiaires to the café made him lose his appetite. He told himself that it was just his cynicism that caused him to react this way, his desire to mock their pride in their spotless uniforms and caps, and not the way that they looked insolently in his direction as they ordered their café au lait. Not for the first time Louverture wondered not for the first time Louverture wondered if he should have stayed in Saint Domingue. The gardien stagiaires gave a cry as another of their number entered the café, but instead of heading for their table he approached Louverture. As he neared, Louverture recognized him. Pelletier, a runner, who, despite being younger than the just-graduated bunch across the room, had already seen a great deal more than they. "'Excuse me, sir,' Pelletier said. Though it was early, Sweat had already drawn a thick line across the band of his cap. He must have run all the way from the cabildo. "'Commandant Trudeau needs to see you right away.' Louverture nodded, glanced at his watch. It was 3.85, almost time to start work anyway. "'Thank you, Pelletier,' he said. The young man's face brightened at the use of his name. My coffee and beignet just arrived, and it seems I won't have time to enjoy them. Why don't you take a moment to rest? He reached into his pocket, dropped four decifrancs in a careful pile on the table. Thank you, sir, Pelletier said. He took off his cap, revealing a thick bristle of sweat-soaked blonde hair. Louverture tapped his own cap in reply, headed for the west exit of the Café du Monde. He lingered there for a moment, just out of sight, watched as Pelletier struggled to decide whether to sit at the table he had just vacated or join the group of young gardiens who were, assuming that out of sight meant out of hearing, now making sniggering comments about café au lait and creole rice. When Pelletier chose the empty table, Louverture smiled to himself, stepped out into Danton Street. It had grown hotter appreciably in the time since he had arrived at the café. Such people as were about clung to the shade like lizards, loitering under the awnings of the building where Pasteur Brewery made its tasteless beer. Louverture crossed the street at a run, dodging the constant flow of velocipedes, and braced himself for the sun-bleached walk across Descartes Square. He walked past the statue of the goddess of reason, with her torch of inquiry and book of truth. The shadow of her torch reached out to the edge of the square, where stenciled numbers marked the ten hours of the day. He doffed his cap to her as always, then gratefully reached the shadows of the colonnade that fronted the cabildo, under the inscription, Ratio Super Fervio. "'Commandant Trudeau wishes to see you, sir,' the guardian at the desk said. The stern portrait of Jacques Hébert on the wall behind glowered down at them. Louverture nodded, went up the stairs to Trudeau's office. Inside he saw Trudeau at his desk, looking over a piece of paper. Officier de la Paix Principale Cloutier was standing nearby. "'Louverture, good to see you,' Trudeau said. His sharp features and high forehead reminded those who met him of Julius Caesar. Modestly... Trudeau underlined the resemblance by placing a bust of the Roman emperor on his desk. "'I'm sorry to call you in early, but an important case has come up, something I wanted you to handle personally.' "'Of course, sir. What is it?' Trudeau passed the paper to him. "'What do you make of this?' It was a sheet of A4 paper, on which were written the words, "'Elle meurt la treize.' "'She dies on the thirteenth, Louverture read. 
This is a photostat. There is very little I can say about it. Physical sciences has the original, Cloutier put in. His round face was redder than usual with the heat. Where Trudeau let his hair grow in long waves, Cloutier kept his cut short to the skull, like a man afraid of lice. They barely consented to making two copies, one for us and one for the graphologist. And physical sciences will tell you it is a sheet of paper such as can be bought at any stationer's, Louverture said. And the ink is everyday ink, and the envelope, if they remember to examine the envelope, was sealed with ordinary glue. They will not tell you what the letter smells like, or the force with which the envelope was sealed, because these things cannot be measured. Which is why we need you, Trudeau said. Concentrate on the text for the moment. The other parts will fall into place in time. There was no ransom demand, Louverture said. Trudeau nodded. That was why they had called him, of course. His greatest successes had been in finding the logic behind crimes that seemed to others to be irrational. Crimes they thought a little black blood made him better able to solve. No daughters of prominent families missing either, so far as we know, Cloutier said. We have Gardien stagiaires canvassing them now. Louverture smiled privately at the thought of the group at the café being called away on long, hot velocipede rides around the city. Of course, the families of kidnapped victims often choose not to inform the police, though rationally they have much better chances with us involved. Still, I do not think that is the case here. If the kidnapper told the family not to involve the police, why the letter to us? Tell me, Commandant, to whom was the letter addressed? Did it come by mail, or was it delivered by hand? By hand, Cloutier said before Trudeau could answer. Pinned on one of the flames of reason's torch. A direct challenge to us. Strange, though, that they should give us so much time to respond, Trudeau mused. The 13th of Fructidor is just under two decades away. Why so much warning? It seems irrational. Crimes by sane men are always for gain, real or imagined, Louverture said. If not money, then perhaps power, as a man murders his wife's lover to regain his lost power over her. The whole point may be to see how much power such a threat can give this man over us. Perhaps the best thing would be to ignore this, at least for now. And let him think he's cowed us, Cloutier said. The corps de command is not cowed. Trudeau said gently. We judge, sanely and rationally, if something is an accident or a crime. Should it be a crime, we take the most logical course of action appropriate. But in this case, Officier Louverture, I think we must respond. If you are correct, ignoring this person would only lead him to do more in hopes of getting a response from us. If you are incorrect, then we certainly must take action. Do you agree? Of course, Commandant, Louverture said. Very good. I have the lumbrosologist working on a composite sketch. Once you have findings from him, graphology and physical sciences, the investigation is yours. I expect daily reports. Louverture nodded, saluted the two men, and stepped out into the hall. Cloutier closed the heavy live oak door after he left, and Louverture could hear out his name being spoken three times in the minute he stood there. He hurried down the steps to the cool basement where the scientific services were and went to the lumbrosology department, knocking on the door as he opened it. Allah, what do you have for me?' he called. "'Your patient center is sorely underdeveloped,' a voice said from across the room. "'Along with your minuscule amatory faculty, it makes for a singularly misshapen skull.' The laboratory was a mess, as always, labeled bust on every shelf and table, and skulls in such profusion that without a large cheerful disposition the place would have seemed like a charnel house. Instead it felt more like a child's playroom, 
the effect magnified by the scientist's system of color-coding the skulls, a dab of red paint for executed criminals, green for natural deaths, and a cheery bright blue for suicides. In the corner of the room, Alars sat at the only desk with open space on it, carefully measuring a Lombroso bust with a pair of calipers and recording the results. Louverture picked up a skull from the table nearest him. It had a spot of red paint and the words Meutrier Negre written on it. It is not my skull I am concerned with today, he said. But it is such a fascinating specimen, Alars said in full sincerity. He had asked Louverture repeatedly to let him make a detailed study of his skull. On their first meeting he had, without introduction, run his hands over Louverture's head and pronounced that he was fortunate to have the rational faculty of the Frank and the creativity of the Negro. "'Could we stick to the matter at hand?' Louverture said. "'Of course, of course.' Alar put down his calipers, turned his full attention to Louverture. "'My sketch won't be ready for an hour or so, though.' "'Never mind that. What can you tell me about the man who wrote the letter?' Allard picked up the notes he had been consulting, peered through his pince-nez as he flipped through them. He is most likely not a habitual criminal, so he will lack the prominent jaw we associate with that type. He also likely possesses a need for self-aggrandizement, a man of whom more was expected, perhaps, with very likely a prominent forehead. A need for attention suggests a second child or later, so look for a round skull overall. I wasn't aware you could tell birth order, Louverture said putting the skull in his hand back on the table. "'You haven't been keeping up with the literature. "'It was in the last Pluvio's journal. "'The mother's parts not yet stretched with birth "'pinched the first child's head, "'rendering it more pointed than later children. "'All else being equal, of course.' "'Louverture nodded. "'Yes, of course. And the race?' "'He was accustomed to tiptoeing around the subject.' Most of his colleagues seemed to feel that they were doing him a favor by treating him as white to his face and black behind his back. "'A tricky question,' Alaris said, apparently feeling no discomfort at the topic. In fact, he was likely the least prejudiced man in the Corps, genuinely seeing black and white as scientific categories. "'What we know shows significant forethought, which suggests a Frank or perhaps an Anglo-Saxon. The apparent motive, however, is irrational, which, of course, suggests a Negro. On the whole, I would tend to favor one of the European types. Why, do you suspect? It's nothing, Louverture said, letting the unspoken question hang in the air. It was the reason he had been given the case, of course, the fear that this was the work of irrationalists, believers in religion and black magic. The Vaudun murders of three years previous had brought him here from Saint-Domingue, and though they had earned him his office and reputation, he had often heard whispers that like follows like. "'I can give you a sketch for each race, if you like,' Alar said. "'It will take a bit longer, of course.' "'Take your time. The sketch will be of little use until we have a suspect to compare it to.' Alar nodded abstractly. His attention returned to the model head in front of him. "'As you say,' Louverture tipped his cap in farewell." stepped out into the hallway and headed up the stairs towards his office, wondering how he might conduct an investigation in which he did not have a single lead. A cryptic threat to an unidentified woman, an unmailed letter delivered by an unseen hand. Poutier's canvas would turn up nothing, of course. If the culprit did not want a ransom, he might just as easily take a poor woman, or even a prostitute. By the time he reached his office, Louverture had decided that Alar's delay, as well as the no-doubt slow progress of the graphologist and of physical sciences, 
gave him the excuse to do just what he had first proposed, ignore the whole matter, and hope the letter-writer went away, or at least provided him with another clue. He was disappointed, therefore, to open his office door and find the graphologist's report sitting on his desk. Louverture settled into his chair, lit the halogen lamp, and began to read. Open curves, large space between letters, mail, confident pen strokes, written cool-headed, without excitement or fear of discovery. He frowned. That did not square with the notion that the letter-writer was seeking to arouse a reaction from the police, but what other motive made sense? Correctly formed letters, well-educated in a good school. This seemed even more illogical. Anyone who received an education knew that all criminals were eventually caught, save those whose confederates turned them in first. Neat, precise capitals. A man of some authority. Louverture closed his eyes, rubbed at them with thumb and forefinger. A confident man who nevertheless had a pathological need for attention and felt neither fear nor excitement in taunting the police, as though the message had been composed and written by two different men. The writer, though, had not been coerced since the letters showed no fear. So what sort of partnership was he looking at? An intelligent criminal with tremendous sang-froid, paired with an insecure, weak-willed... But no, it made no sense. The former would restrain the latter from any attention-getting activities, not assist them. Unless a bargain of some sort was involved, the cool-headed man having to gratify the other's needs in order to gain something he required, access to something he possessed, perhaps, or someone... Well, it was a pretty play he had written. All he needed was a pair of actors to play the parts. The Verture tore a piece of paper from the pad on his desk, uncapped his fountain pen, and wrote... Imagine two criminals, group-like faculties, on it. The first criminal, the cool-headed one, would have had little contact with the police, but the second, he very likely could not help it. He opened the bottom drawer of his desk, rummaged inside for a tube labeled Lombrosology, rolled the paper up, tucked it in the tube, and pushed the whole thing into the pneumatic. Standing, he turned the neck of his lamp to point its beam at his bookshelf, then scanned the leather-bound volumes of the rogues' gallery there. What would the excitable man's earlier crimes have been? Nothing spectacular, but at the same time something directed at gaining attention. Public nudity, perhaps? Harassment? A man with a wife, a daughter, a sister, perhaps a domestic living in. A man with little self-control and yet not truly poor. Or else how would he have met the educated man he was partnered with? If not poor, though, his neighbors would have complained about the noise that almost certainly came from his house. Louverture took volume 23, Noise Infractions, off the shelf and added it to the pile on the desk. He was not sure how much time had passed when he heard the door open. He looked up from the book in front of him, expecting to see Alar with his sketches. Instead, it was Cloutier. Louverture stood, gave a small salute. Officier principal, what can I do for you? Cloutier cleared his throat, brushed at his dark blue jacket with his fingertips. It's past six. Are we going to see your progress report today? I haven't received anything from Lombrosology or Physical Sciences yet. I'm told you haven't given orders to any of the Guardian to search or arrest anyone. Have you spent the whole day reading books? Cloutier asked, looking around at Louverture's desk and shelves with distaste. I've been rounding up known criminals, Louverture said. Doing it this way saves your men time and energy. Incidentally, are my reports not to go to Commandant Trudeau? To him through me. Public safety is my responsibility, and I must respond quickly to any threat. We have almost twenty days, Louverture said mildly. 
If whoever wrote that letter is being truthful, have you ever known criminals to be truthful, Louverture? Why bother to give us the letter and then lie in it? If you wanted to avoid detection, wouldn't it have been better not to alert us at all? Cloutier coughed loudly. It's nonsense to expect him to be logical. If he were a rational man, he'd know better than to be a criminal. Louverture nodded. As you say. I'll make sure my report is on your desk before you go. How much longer were you planning on staying tonight? Never mind, Cloutier said. Just have it there before I get here in the morning. Of course. Is there anything else? Cloutier seemed to think for a moment, then shook his head, turned to leave. Just keep me informed. Louverture waited until Cloutier was out the door, then called to him. Oh, officier principal, I forgot to ask. Did your canvas turn anything up? With a barely perceptible shake of his head, Cloutier stepped out into the hall. Though he could not help smiling, Louverture wondered whether there had been a miscalculation. It was no secret that Cloutier did not like him, a situation caused as much by his coming from outside the local corps hierarchy as by his mixed blood. It would be best, he thought, to leave off further teasing of the lion for now. Resolving to restrain himself better, Louverture returned to his desk and began writing his report. The next morning Louverture was reading over his notes, trying to get them to make sense. He had taken the omnibus instead of his velocipede, so that he could read on his way to work, laying the pages on the briefcase on his lap, but the heat and vibration kept him from concentrating. His cap was damp with sweat, but he refused to take it off. He knew from experience how people reacted when they saw his dark, kinked hair emerge from under an officier's hat. Not that there were many people to react this morning, the omnibus being only half full. He forced his mind to return to its task. If his theory was right, the second man was undoubtedly the key, but he had not found anyone in the rogue's gallery that fit the profile. Could a man with such a need for attention possibly have hidden it all these years? Perhaps he had another outlet until recently, an actor, for instance, put out of work by the theater closings. A sudden jolt interrupted Louverture's train of thought. He looked up from his notes, saw that the omnibus had stopped in the middle of the street. The driver had already disembarked, and the other passengers were filing off, grumbling. "'Excuse me,' he said to the man in front of him. "'What has happened?' "'It's broke down again,' the man said. Third time this month. I'd do better on foot.' Louverture followed the queue onto the sidewalk. A few of the passengers had gathered to wait for the next omnibus, the rest hailing pedicabs or walking off down the street. The driver had the bottom open and was looking inside. Louverture tapped him on the shoulder. What's the matter with it? The driver turned his head and opened his mouth to speak, closed it when he saw Louverture's uniform. It's corroded, sir, he said. Do you smell that? Louverture took a sniff, a sharp smell like a lemon but much more harsh, was emanating from the omnibus's hood. That is the engine? The battery, sir, the driver said. That's sulfuric acid inside. Eventually it eats away at the whole thing. This happens often? The driver shook his head. They break down sometimes, but not usually like this. The scientists think it may be the heat. And they're sure it's a natural phenomenon. It hasn't been reported to the Corps. I suppose, the driver said, shrugged. Why in reason's name would anyone sabotage an omnibus? What's to gain from it? Well, I hope they solve the problem soon. The driver laughed. Me too. Much longer, and I'll need another job. There'll be no one riding them at all. Louverture tapped the brim of his cap to the man, stepped over to the curb to hail a pedicab. He could hear the other passengers grumbling a bit when one stopped at the sight of his badge, saw the obvious annoyance of the man inside whose cab he had commandeered. He disliked being so high-handed, but he could not afford to be late. 
After his little dig at Cloutier the night before, the man would be looking for reasons to undermine him. His fears were realized when he arrived at the Cabildo at 395, and the guardian at the desk waved him over. "'Officier Principal Cloutier is waiting for you in the interrogation room, sir,' he said. Louverture tapped his cap in acknowledgment and went through the big double doors that led to the interrogation and holding areas, hoping Cloutier had not done anything that would make his job more difficult. When he arrived at the interrogation room, he saw the man himself, talking to the guardian at the door to the cell. "'Louverture, nice of you to come in,' Cloutier said, bursting with scarcely restrained smugness. "'What's this?' Louverture asked, looked through one of the recessed portholes in the wall. He saw inside a dark-skinned negro sitting at the table. "'You have a suspect? How did you find him?' "'He was in possession of another copy of the notes, "'along with paper, pen, and ink that precisely matched "'those used to write the letter, according to physical sciences,' Cloutier said. "'So we brought him in.' "'Louverture took a long breath in and out. "'And just how did you find this particular pen and paper owner?' "'I had my men search some of the worst areas of the Treme at dawn this morning. "'I am not afraid to expend a little time and energy if it gets results.' "'And I suppose he vigorously resisted arrest? "'I ask only because black skin shows bruises so poorly. "'I might not know otherwise. "'A little rough handling only. "'Commandant Trudeau directed that I leave the interrogation to you.' "'Gracious thanks,' Louverture said. "'If you'll excuse me.' "'He nodded to the guardian to open the door and went inside. "'The suspect was sitting on a light cane chair, "'his hands chained behind his back. "'His face, at least, was unmarked. "'I am officier de la paille la voiture, he said in a calm voice. "'What is your name?' "'Duhem,' the man stuttered. "'Lucien Duhem.' "'His eyes darted to the door. "'We are alone,' Louverture said. "'You may speak freely. "'Do you know why you have been arrested, Monsieur Duhem?' "'I didn't know how that paper got there.' "'Someone planted paper, pen, and ink in your house without you knowing?' "'Duhem opened his mouth to speak, closed it again.' Louverture shook his head. Well, then, how did it get there? Uh, I don't... I, I don't know. I see, Louverture sighed. Now there was one man to compose the note, another to write it, a third to deliver it. Too large a cast for the play to be believable. Sitting down opposite to M, he realized that he still had his briefcase with him. In a sudden inspiration, he set it on the table, opened it with the top towards the prisoner, so a Duhem could not see the contents. I keep the tools of my trade in this case, Lucien. Do you know what they are? Duhem shook his head. The most important one is my razor. Duhem's eyes widened. Louverture took out his badge, tapped on the image of a razor and metron, crossed. This razor was given to me by Monsieur Abelard, but it is not an ordinary razor. Instead of shaving hair, it lets me shave away what is improbable and leaves only the truth. He peered over the open case at Duhem. It tells me that you wrote a note with that pen and paper and placed it on the Statue of Reason in Descartes Square and that we must therefore charge you with suspicion of kidnapping. Duhem took an involuntary breath, confirming Louverture's suspicion. He took the day's paper from the case, showed the headline to Duhem. It read, Fou de la Marche, Deuxième de Moi. Have you seen this? Man hunt for kidnapper. You've cost a lot of time and trouble, Lucien. I didn't know anything about a kidnapping. I didn't know! Duhem tried to rise to his feet, was restrained by the chain fastening him to the table. The man, he gave me three pieces of paper, said he'd pay if I delivered them for him. I thought it was a prank. Louverture leaned back, rubbed his chin. You've intrigued me, Lucien. Tell me about this man. Duhem shrugged, winced as he did so. 
Nouverture saw his right shoulder was probably dislocated. He was a rich man, well-dressed, a man like you. A policier? No, a white. A convincing story requires more detail, Lucien, Louverture said, shaking his head sadly. He spoke well, though he was trying not to, clean-shaven with a narrow face. He wore those little smoke-tinted glasses, so I didn't see his eyes. And just where did someone like you meet this wealthy, well-spoken man? I have a pedicab. It's good money since the omnibus has started breaking down. Duhem looked at Louverture's unbelieving eyes, then down at the table. I stole it. Very well. Where did you pick him up? On Baron Street, just west of the canal. He was going to the ferry dock. Would you recognize him if you saw him again, or a picture? I'll try, Duhem said, nodding eagerly. Louverture closed his briefcase, rose to his feet. Very well, Lucien, we shall test your theory, he said. You'll remain our guest for the time being, and I'll see your shoulder gets looked at. Thank you, officier. It's nothing. Louverture turned to go, paused. Oh, one thing more. You said you were given three copies. We found the one you planted on the statue, and one more you had. Where is the other? I was to deliver one every night, Duhem said. Where? The statue first, second the newspaper, and then the Reason Cathedral. So you delivered the second last night? To the Père de Chêne? Duhem shook his head. No, sir, the other paper. Louverture swore under his breath, turned to the door and knocked on it harshly. The guardian on the other side opened it and he stepped through. Cloutier was still standing there by one of the portholes in the wall. We have a problem, Louverture said. The Minerve has a copy of the letter. I'll send a man, probably too late. It would have been waiting for them this morning. Cloutier rolled his eyes. Assuming your man in there isn't just telling stories. He can't read, Louverture said, forcing his voice to stay level. How do you suppose he wrote the letters? No, he's telling the truth. And by this afternoon, everyone will know that she dies on the 13th. Perhaps it's a good thing, Cloutier said, shrugged. It will make people alert. When he strikes, someone will see him and report it to us. It will make people panic. With an unfocused threat like this, we'll be sure to get mobs beating anyone they think is suspicious. In the poorer neighborhoods, maybe. We'll set extra patrols in them. But this is not Saint-Domingue, my friend. Most of the people here are entirely too rational for that. I hope so, Louverture said. Something was nagging at him, some overlooked detail. It slipped away as he probed for it like a loose tooth. At any rate, we still have plenty of time before the 13th of Fructidor. But let us hope all the attention doesn't cause our man to move up his timetable. Louverture nodded, frowned. Yes, that is strange. Nearly twenty days till then, but only three letters. He turned to the guardian by the door. Have him move to a holding cell and see that his shoulder gets looked at. The guardian looked from him to Cloutier, who gave a small nod. I'd best give the commandant the news, Cloutier said, then tapped his cap and headed for the stairs. Watching him go, Louverture wondered how much of his theory could be salvaged. If Duhem was telling the truth, and Louverture felt sure he was, he had been right about the culprit having a confederate, but he was still left with the impossibility of the letter having been written and composed by the same man. He followed his line of thought up the stairs to his office. When the inescapable conclusion of your assumptions seems impossible, he thought, question your assumptions. His theory depended on at least one of the culprits needing to gain attention for his actions, and the letter to the Minerve certainly supported that. The Père de Chêne would not print it without approval from the Corps. If that was not the motive, though, or one of the motives, everything that followed from it changed, but what other motive could account for everything? 
He opened the door to his office, saw four of Alar's sketches sitting on his desk. Two were the ones he had discussed, assuming a single culprit. One version was white, one black. The other two, both white, were a split version of the first, the one having the physiognomy of the cautious, intelligent man, the second one emotional and impulsive. None of them much resembled anyone he had seen in the rogues' gallery volumes the night before. He looked them over, wondering if any of them might be the man Duhem said had hired him. The first two faces were like nobody he had ever seen, impossible configurations of rationality and impulsiveness. The fourth could be almost anyone. The third, though, he narrowed his eyes, imagining that man wearing smoke-tinted glasses. He looked a bit like a lard himself, or perhaps one of the men from physical sciences. Someone intelligent, certainly. Louverture tried to imagine what his next move would be. Did he know his messenger had been captured? If so, would he find another one, or would his purpose have been achieved with just the first two letters delivered? Would he be lying low or enjoying the chaos that the story in the Minerve would surely spark? No way to know without understanding his motive, and the more Louverture stared at the sketch, the more he doubted that this man was seeking a thrill. Louverture rolled up the sketches, his head starting to feel like a velodrome from the thoughts whizzing around in it. He was missing something, he knew that, some detail just out of reach, and he knew that chasing it around and around would not make it appear. Time to do things Cloutier's way. He would have photostats of the sketches made, give them to Guardian associated to where Baron crossed the canal and to the ferry dock. Perhaps he could even make some of those snickering stagiaires pretend to be pedicab drivers in the hopes the culprit would come to them seeking another messenger. He imagined the man was too smart for that, but all it would cost was time and energy. Cheered, Louverture headed into the photostat room. Cloutier could hardly complain about this. Just to be sure, he would take part of the stake out himself. At the docks, he thought, where the breeze off the river would make the heat more tolerable. He would be sure to salute all the pedicab drivers dropping off their passengers. Early the next morning, Louverture sat up suddenly in bed, seized by a sudden thought. Two pieces that had not fit. The thirteenth, and just three letters to be delivered. If he was right, the two together made a very important piece indeed, but he could not be sure without a great deal of work and books that were in the office. He dressed quickly, went downstairs, and mounted his velocipede, riding through the empty streets in the dark. Fortunately, the rest of the city was still asleep, absorbed as he was by the new lines of thought opening up. He would not have noticed an omnibus bearing down on him. As it was, he nearly startled the night guard to death, suddenly appearing in the pool of light cast by the sodium lamps in Descartes Square, and skidding to a stop mere meters from the door of the cabildo. He flashed his badge and rushed up to his office. Hours of reading and calculation later, he picked up the speaking tube to call Commandant Trudeau. "'Well, Louverture, here we are,' Cloutier said when the three of them assembled some minutes later in Trudeau's office. "'I take it you are going to tell us you have settled the case by doing figures all night?' "'Not the whole case, no, but you'll want to hear it. Tell me, officier principal, do you know the old calendar at all?' "'The royal calendar, you mean? No, I never studied history. Why?' "'What day of the month is it by that reckoning, do you suppose?' Louverture asked. "'What does it matter?' Trudeau was smiling, nodding to himself. "'May I venture a guess, officier Louverture?' Louverture nodded magnanimously. "'Then, if you are right, the timetable has been moved up. "'Or rather, it was further along than we knew.' "'What do you mean?' Cloutier said, frowning deeply, then eyes widening. "'Oh, so it is the thirteenth day by that calendar?' "'Of Thermidor or Fructidor?' "'Augustus,' Trudeau said, with a glance at the bust on his desk. "'Very good, Louverture, though I'm afraid this makes things a great deal more serious.' 
Cloutier ran his hand over his shaved scalp. But I don't understand. Even the English gave up that calendar years ago. Who would still use such an irrational system? Irrationalists, Louverture said with a faint smile. And the day is no coincidence either. Thirteen was a very powerful number to pre-rational minds associated with disaster. Whatever they have in mind may be bigger even than murder. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You think it is the voodoo again, then? Is this all part of some irrational magic ritual? Trudeau asked. Louverture spread his hands. I don't know. The number 13, the royal calendar? Yes, that is common to all those that hew to the old religions. But the letters, no. The voodoo, the Catholics, the Jews, they all rely on secrecy to go undetected. Perhaps the letter writer is not a threat, but a warning. Someone inside this group who wishes to prevent what they are planning to do. Then why not tell us more, and why the letters to the Minerve and the cathedral? Louverture chewed his lower lip. If you'll pardon me, that is, commandant. Trudeau waved his objection away. Of course, officier, speak freely. Moreover, we still have the reports from graphology and lumbrosology. Those tell us the letter writer is an educated, rational man. How can he be a rational irrationalist? Cloutier put in. How indeed, Trudeau said. It seems that we resolve one paradox only to create another. Commandant, I'm sure I can... I'm sorry, Louverture, Trudeau said, putting up a hand. Please do not take this as a lack of faith in you, but I am handing this matter over to Officier Principal Cloutier. What you have discovered tells me that we must take immediate action. But we have no motive, no suspects. We know where our suspects are, Cloutier said. All the irrationalists, we know where they live, where they have their secret churches... We found your friend Lucien easily enough, didn't we? But, Officier Louverture, I'm told you've been here since 175. You've rendered a great service to the Corps today, and you deserve a rest. Louverture clamped his mouth shut, nodded. Thank you, Commandant, he managed to say. With a nod to each of his superiors, he rose and left the room. The sun was beating down outside, causing Louverture to realize he had forgotten his cap at home. As well, his abandoned velocipede was gone. 
Shading his eyes with his hands, he quick-stepped across the square, then ducked into the café to pick up a Minerve and found a shady spot to wait for the omnibus. The headline, predictably, read, Almure la Treze. Further down the page, another story trumpeted, Un autre sabotage au théâtre. La Comédie Française ferme support. He folded his paper under his arm, unable to cope with any more irrationality. To whose benefit would it be to sabotage all the theaters without asking for protection money? She's not coming, someone said. He turned to see an older black man in a white cotton shirt and pants, sweating profusely. He had obviously been walking a long way in the sun. I'm sorry, Liverture said. The omnibus. She's not coming. Broke down at Champs-Élysées. The man shook his head. Sorry, son, he said, continued walking. Louverture mouthed a curse, scanned the empty street for pedicabs. He supposed that driver had been right, thinking he would be out of a job soon. It was almost like a sort of experiment to see how often buses could break down before people stopped taking them, the way people had stopped going to the theaters. A terrible, inescapable thought hit him. Desperate to disprove it, Louverture set out at a run. His face was red by the time he arrived at the theater, a very hot half-kilometer away. He banged on the stage door with a closed fist, catching his breath. "'We're closed!' a voice came from inside. "'Corps de command!' Louverture said. He imagined he could hear the man inside sighing as he opened up. "'What can I do for you?' the man said. He was tall, about 180 centimeters, with a long face and deeply receding hairline, wearing black pants and turtleneck. He was quite incidentally blocking the doorway he had just opened. "'May I come in?' The man's eyes narrowed as he stepped inside. "'You say you're with the Corps?' Liverture realized that he was wearing neither his cap nor his uniform, and that his hair was showing. He took out his badge, showed it to the man. "'Officier de la paix, Louverture, and you are?' "'Gaetan, Gaetan Tremblay. I'm the stage manager, at least.' Stepping inside, Louverture nodded, held up his copy of the Minerve. "'What can you tell me about last night?' The cyclorama dropped, Tremblay said. That's the backdrop that... I know, was anyone hurt? No, but with all that's happened to the other theaters, people just panicked. May I see? Tremblay led him down the black carpeted hallway to the backstage entrance, lit the halogens that hung above. In the pool of light that appeared, Louverture could see the fallen cloth, as wide as the stage, gathered around a thick metal pole that sat on the ground. A slackened rope still extended from the far end of the pole to the fly gallery above. The rope from the near end was severed, lying in a loose coil on the floor. We lowered the intact side so it wouldn't fall unexpectedly, Tremblay said. Louverture picked up the snapped rope, ran it through his fingers until the end reached him. The strands were all the same length except for one, and only that one had stretched and frayed. Has anyone examined this? Tremblay shook his head. I told them it was an accident, but you know how superstitious actors are. That will be all I need, then. Louverture said, waiting for Tremblay to lead him back out the maze of corridor. Officier, Tremblay said when they reached the door. Do you think if we close for a while, the people, will they? Forget? Louverture pushed the door open, blinked at the light outside. Of course, with enough time, people can forget anything. His mind raced as he ran back to the cabildo. A paradox was not a dead end, he had forgotten that. It was an intersection of two streets you hadn't known existed. He smelled sulfur as he reached the square, saw smoke rising from near the courthouse. The guardian at the door leveled a pistol at him as he neared. "'Keep back, please,' the guardian said. Louverture raised his hands. He could not recall if he had ever seen a guardian draw his gun before. "'I'm officier Louverture,' he said, 
slowly dropping his right hand. I'm reaching for my badge. He fished it out carefully, extended it at arm's length. Go in, then, the guardian said, and you might want to get a spare uniform if you're staying. What's going on? A bomb at the courthouse. Sweet reason. Was anyone killed? The guardian shook his head. It missed fire, or else it was just a smoke bomb, but they found two more just like it at the cathedral and the Académie Scientifique. Excuse me, Louverture said, waving his badge at the desk man as he went inside. Louverture, Commandant Trudeau said, looking up from the charts on his desk. I told Cloutier you wouldn't be able to stay away. Cloutier, his back to Louverture, nodded absently. Quite a mess, isn't it? Commandant, officier principal, I think I understand it now, he said. I think I know who is doing this. Which group of irrationalists? Not irrationalists, scientists. It's an experiment. Trudeau looked confused the first time Louverture had seen it in his face. Explain! A series of larger and larger experiments. The theater accidents, the omnibus failures. They were done on purpose to test how much it takes to change people's behavior. The notes, the bomb, probably too. They were to test us. Test us for what? To see how much it would take to make us react irrationally. To see every accident as sabotage. Every abandoned briefcase as a bomb. Perhaps we too are just a test for a larger experiment. But the notes, Cloutier said, turning to face him. Who were they threatening? Louverture glanced out the window at the statue in the middle of the square. Reason, he said. She dies tonight. I'm sorry, officier, but this makes no sense, Trudeau said. What would be the motive? I'm not sure. Jealousy? A wish to possess reason for themselves alone? Or perhaps the motive is reason itself. Perhaps they simply want to know. This is ridiculous, Cloutier barked. He wants us chasing phantoms. We know who the irrationalist leaders are. Arrest them, and the others will follow soon enough. And how will people react when they see the Corps out in force with pistols? Will they remain rational, do you think? I've ordered a curvefer for eight o'clock, Cloutier said. People will stay inside when they see the lights are out. Louverture closed his eyes. As you say. Will you join us, Louverture? Trudeau said, his attention back on the maps on his desk. We can use another man, especially tonight. Is that an order, Commandant? There was a long pause. Then Trudeau very carefully said, No, officier, it isn't. Go home and get your rest. Go quickly and show your badge if anyone questions you. Thank you, sir. Louverture went down the stairs, pushed through the guardian assembling in the lobby, noticed Pelletier, saluted him. Pelletier did not answer his salute. Perhaps the boy did not recognize him without his cap and uniform, and at any rate he was talking to the guardian stagiaire around him. Not wanting to interrupt, Louverture stepped outside. The sun was nearly down, but the air was still hot. Reason's torch cast a weak shadow on the number eight. Heading for Danton Street, Louverture saw a man approaching across the square. He was wearing a dark wool suit despite the weather, a top hat, and smoke-tinted glasses. Louverture looked the man in the eyes as he neared, trying to read him. The man cocked his head curiously and gazed back at him. The two of them circled each other slowly, eyes locked. When they had exchanged positions, the man doffed his hat to Louverture. His perfectly calm face creased with just a hint of a smile, then turned and did the same to the Statue of Reason. Louverture knew that look. It was the one Alard wore when measuring a skull. The man found an empty bench, sat down and waited, as though he expected a show to unfold in front of him at any moment. The bells of the Cathedral of Reason rang out eight o'clock, and the sodium lamps in the square faded to darkness. 
The lights were going out all over town. Louverture did not suppose he would see them lit again. Well done to Nobilis for coping with all the French pronunciation in that story. And what a story. Let's move on to the second one. It's called, and I love this title, Mrs. Wilson and the Black Arts of Mrs. Beelzebub from Number 6 by Stephen Perrier. Stephen lives in Liverpool with his wife and son. His fiction has appeared in magazines and anthologies around the world. His comic fantasy novel, Digging Up Donald, published by Emanion Press in 2004 and again in 2007, has attracted excellent reviews. A second novel, Burying Brian, was published also by Emanion Press in December 2010. Steve's website is stephenperiade.com. It's read by Veronica Giger. Veronica, or V, is a voice artist and author whose work can be heard on a wealth of podcast fiction magazines, full casts and audiobooks across genres such as science fiction, fantasy, horror, romance and steampunk. When she isn't bringing the voices in others' heads to life, V masquerades as a mild-mannered academic whose specialities include first-year student success, learning strategies and preparing for the zombie apocalypse. Very important work. And so, here it is. Mrs. Wilson knew they were not earthly cats. Mr. Wilson had thrown his boot at them to shut them up for a start, and somehow they'd thrown it back. And it was the way their eyes shone piercing green even in the daylight. At night, in their sepulchral wailing and tireless leaping at the moon, they seemed very much otherworldly. It was a worry. In the kitchen at number eight, Mrs. Wilson paused in stacking biscuits on her best crockery. She glanced beyond the window and over the fence into Mrs. Beelzebub's garden next door, to where the cats still gathered. In the corner, part hidden behind the rickety wooden shed and the glorious apple tree, the vortices to beyond shimmered blue and green in the morning sunshine. Mrs. Wilson sighed. Such a crime to sully a garden with the supernatural. Gardens were meant to be calm places, havens from the horrors of outside and she'd rather hoped the cats and the portals and the demonic folk would be gone by now. Then things would likely be easier, less messy. "'More tea, ladies,' said Mrs. Wilson, stepping through into the living room and setting the silver tray upon the occasional table. "'And a custard cream, perhaps?' "'She'll have to go.' Mrs. Rose from number three took a cup and saucer. "'Tea spilled where it shook a little in her grasp. "'It's not natural. "'Twice last week my Ronald was set upon by denizens of the underworld. "'Ugly buggers they were, squat and warty and fly. "'They chased him all the way to Lemmings Road and back. "'It was all he could do to escape with his mortal soul.' "'Mrs. Trent from Number One nodded. "'On Tuesday my Frank was overcome by netherworldly fumes seeping out from under Mrs. Beelzebub's front door. "'It turned him unusually amorous.' "'She straightened her perm and her eyelid twitched. "'And I can tell you that upset my week completely.' "'Mrs. Wilson sat quietly. "'She knew what was coming.' 
ever since the Beelzebubs had moved in next door. Was it really just a month ago that the clouds had split asunder to the herald of dark trumpeters, and the black coach and four had trundled bold as bold up Sunshine Terrace? It seemed, just because she was the neighborhood watch co-coordinator, as if she had been designated in charge, as if ultimately all responsibility ended up at her door. "'We thought perhaps you'd have a word,' said Mrs. Rose, a custard-cream part raised to her mouth. "'Oh, in your official neighborly capacity, of course.' Mrs. Wilson rubbed its stubble on her chin. "'It's true all's not going as it should be next door,' she said. "'Though, apart from the cats and the comings and goings, they do tend to keep themselves to themselves. But, very well, I'll pop over and see Mrs. Beelzebub first thing after lunch. I'm sure she's a reasonable sort. I'm sure there'll be no harm in a quiet chat.' "'Then we'll leave it in your hands.' said Mrs. Trent. "'But think on she'll have to go,' said Mrs. Rose. Mrs. Trent slurped tea. "'For sure, Miss Wilson, we'll be relying on you.' It grew dark after lunch, early dusk dark. Storm clouds, rain-bloated and angry-bruised, rumbled in from the west. A wind shrieked down Mrs. Wilson's chimney and blew soot across her porcelain figurine of the infant Jesus at prayer upon the mantelpiece. Seraphim, the cat, scampered away on its belly to hide under the stairs. Mrs. Wilson parted the drapes and counted the ravens mustering on Mrs. Beelzebub's guttering. Twenty, she thought. Twenty shadows dancing on more shadows. Beyond the roof, black riders rode lightning-bolt steeds across the sky. "'It's as I thought, Seraphim,' she said. "'Even before I got out of bed this morning, I could feel the dark forces gathering. "'I rather hoped Mrs. Beelzebub would be one of the Basingtoke Beelzebubs. Oh, "'But alas, it would seem, if what I'm seeing is to be true, "'she's one of the depths of hell, Beelzebubs.' "'She glanced once more at the sky. "'There was fire now, rusting the rims of the rolling clouds. "'Dark angels sang in the thunder.' "'And today is an apocalyptic day, if ever there was. Oh, "'I suppose I'd best be over there and put a stop to it. "'Now, where's my hat and coat?' "'A small crowd of nether folk had gathered in Mrs. Beelzebub's driveway "'by the time Mrs. Wilson trudged over. "'Some sat about a hastily drawn pentagram, "'plucking entrails from a sheep and incanting ancient words in foreign tongues. "'Others sharpened swords on great grindstones "'turned by whiplashed imps and harpies.' Sprites lay in the dirt, the little lightning rods erect and suggestive, pleading to the electric sky above. Beyond the hedge, Mrs. Wilson sensed the dead, lurking, waiting should their calling come. "'Do excuse me,' said Mrs. Wilson, stepping over a particularly fearsome Cerberus. "'I've business with the lady of the house, and so do move aside. Oh, there's a good dog.' It was cold at the Beelzebub's door. "'As cold as hell,' Mrs. Wilson presumed. "'Or was hell hot? "'It was hard to keep up sometimes, "'particularly since the heavenly directives "'had stopped coming since the problems up there. "'No angels had appeared to her in a dream for months, "'and prayers seemed to go nowhere but voicemail. "'She pounded thrice upon Mrs. Beelzebub's iron-door knocker, "'and the sound was like every fist "'that had thrashed against death's door. "'The door creaked ajar.' 
Who comes at this hour? said Mrs. Beelzebub, peering outward through the gap. Lightning flashed, and wolves howled at the sound of her voice. Just me, said Mrs. Wilson. I know it's probably a bad time, but I wonder if I might have a word, Mrs. Beelzebub. Ending is near. Time is short. I realize that, but it'll not take long. Mrs. Beelzebub opened the door fully and glanced sparrow-like up and down Sunshine Terrace. Come in, then, and quickly, she said, and mind the pit of eternity in the hall. It was a good pit of eternity, Mrs. Wilson agreed, as she stepped carefully about its rim in the hallway. She paused and peered down into the future. I do like the swirling winds effect. Aye, and based on quantum certainty, you know, said Mrs. Beelzebub. I always feel when falling into a pit of eternity, it is important one knows exactly where one's atoms are. It makes for a much more concentrated torment, don't you think? Mrs. Wilson followed Mrs. Beelzebub through the lounge. It smelled of sulfur and was smoky where firefalls tumbled down the wallpaper on the far wall. Behind the hat-stand in the corner, tiers of benches, unoccupied, shimmered away into unseen dimensions. Facing the benches, across the room, rows of empty cages steamed liquid nitrogen cold. Now please, sit, Mrs. Wilson. Tell me what's on your mind. Mrs. Wilson sat and brushed the upholstery of Mrs. Beelzebub's armchair with the back of her fingers. Cottage sweets, with their soft patterns of gardens with summer flower and delicate fresh leaf, always brought memories of better days. It was an Eden thing, perhaps, a subtle reminder of a gentler age. And for a moment Mrs. Wilson was young again, frolicking carefree through the meadows and gardens of her youth, when the world itself was young and time passed more slowly. "'This will be the courtroom,' said Mrs. Wilson." She paused as an imp stepped out from the wall of fire. It carried a bundle of scythes in its stubby arms. The blades shone blue-sharp in the flickering firelight. And I see preparations are well underway for the trials. Mrs. Beelzebub smiled pleasantly. Mrs. Wilson knew that the devil was charming in its ways. Humanity liked to be charmed. It was where the church often went wrong, she thought. Good with the stick, but so often lacking with the carrot. An eternal reward in heaven, after all, might seem ill-chosen if there is the merest murmur of agnosticism in the soul. And who could fail the slightest tinge of doubt, given the way of the world and the folk who roam it? "'There's no shortage of sins these days, Mrs. Wilson,' said Mrs. Beelzebub, echoing Mrs. Wilson's private thoughts. "'And nor of sinners. Surely even your side sees the time is right for a spot of judgment.' You must have seen what humanity is up to right now, with its bombs and pollution and sexual deviation and lawlessness, and much of it in his name. She pointed vaguely upward with a finger. Mrs. Wilson sighed. I had hoped you weren't the real thing, Mrs. Beelzebub. I've seen a few witches and conjurers gathering demons in my time, and seen them off, I should add. She glanced ruefully about Mrs. Beelzebub's front room. The windows rattled as Hell's engines churned below her feet. 
The damned howled briefly behind the closed kitchen door. But, quite obviously, you are the genuine Beelzebub. Indeed, I am. And what of you, Eve? May I call you Eve? Do you join me, or do you oppose me again, this time? Mrs. Wilson stood wearily from her chair. In the creak of her knees, she suddenly felt old. Oppose is such a confrontational word, Mrs. Beelzebub, but, yes, I will provide defense. It's what I must do for my sins. Then we'll meet again at judgment hour. Aye, no doubt we shall. Back at home, in the kitchen at number eight, Mrs. Wilson's yellow rubber gloves were a blur in the washing-up bowl. The dishes were long since lemon-clean, but being connected with earth powers, with the simple cleansing qualities of water and the aroma of suds, helped her think more clearly. She shivered. How long had it been since she'd been called Eve? And how long since she'd talked to Adam? What would Mr. Wilson say if he knew about him? A loving sort, Mr. Wilson, and so trusting. What of the lie she'd been living for him? Was that a sin, too? She dried her hands and shuffled through into the living room. She watched Mrs. Rose struggle by outside the window, the old woman bent against the pre-judgment hour winds. And there was Mrs. Trent, and Mrs. Almond from number twelve, too. Good folk, she mused, respectable and God-fearing, upright citizens like most people of the world. Surely it wasn't right that the Beelzebubs should condemn everyone for the sake of the few bad apples. Bad apples. Mrs. Wilson shivered. Wasn't that what started it all in the first place? She walked slowly into the hallway and hesitated to pick up the telephone and dial his number. The dial tone was rasping rude. Hello, Adam. It's me, Eve. Yes, I know, a long time. No, I must see you. It's important. Can you come over? No, come today. Come now. And bring the apple. While she waited, Mrs. Wilson dusted the rubber plant. It was a fine rubber plant, blessed with leaves of deepest green, and in truth didn't need dusting. But idle hands she'd found would take to prayer, and then she'd be faced with heaven's problems as well as those of her own here below. Besides, it wouldn't do to go planning holy wars with a dusty house. She stood on the doorstep and watched the evil comings and goings next door. And Adam came with the throaty roar of a sleek black sob speeding down Sunshine Terrace. Eve, baby, said Adam, pulling himself arthritically from the car. Dark glasses hid the millennia lurking behind his eyes. He grinned at a young floozy in the passenger seat, blonde and leggy, and millions of years Adam's younger, though Mrs. Wilson doubted she'd know it. Stay there, kitten. I'll be back before I'm gone. You're looking young, Adam said Mrs. Wilson, as she led Adam hobbling inside number eight. In the skin, I mean, ridiculously young, but the bones look a bit lived in. Isn't it time you grew old gracefully? Adam shrugged. Immortality's wasted on the old Eve, and hey, I got my glucosamine sulfate tablets for the bones. 
he slumped into Mrs. Wilson's armchair. And my kitten does a fine massage when I'm up for it. Modern times, eh? Did you bring the apple? It's here. Mrs. Wilson felt the thud of her heart against her ribs as she watched Adam search his pockets for the apple. When he held it in his opened palm, the room glowed golden with the light of the sun's first dawn. It was fresh and succulent, damp as if newly picked under refreshing rains. Even the single ancient bite in its flesh bore teeth marks sharp and clean as if it were just taken yesterday, not a relic from all those years ago when Mrs. Wilson had teeth of her own, and when serpents hissed temptation in the boughs of the Garden of Eden. "'I hear there's to be judgment,' said Adam. Mrs. Wilson peered out through the drapes. "'Aye, the Beelzebubs are next door. They're about—' Thunder shook the house. The wail of dark hymns filled the air. The drums of war began. Thrum, 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 thrum. To begin, it would seem. But this time it's not of our doing, said Adam. Some sins can't be washed clean by first comings, Adam. Mrs. Wilson took the apple and held it up to the light bulb in the ceiling rose. Its skin was delicate and moist. Millions of years and not a hint of bruising sullied it. And there was still just the one bite from it, taken for her sins. Adam shivered visibly. You mean to take a second bite, then? Mrs. Wilson nodded. Have you noticed God and his heaven are missing? It would seem the only way to bring them both back. It would cause a second coming, Eve, and at what cost to yourself? The last time we were thrown from the garden. This time it could be from creation itself. That we shall see. Eve hid the apple in the pocket of her blouse. Whatever happens, it's time God took responsibility once more for his creation. He'll not like it. No, I suppose not. All of Sunshine Terrace's occupants were in the cages when Mrs. Wilson arrived back in Mrs. Beelzebub's front room. Mrs. Rose looked lost and confused, and cold beyond the billowing liquid nitrogen fumes. Mrs. Trent grumbled, her umbrella held aloft and threatening. Mr. Patrick, from number 17, argued with a nearby apocalyptic horseman. Mr. Salty, from number 9, sobbed uncontrollably. To the front, his features twisted in fear and silent pleading— stood Mr. Wilson. Mrs. Wilson looked away quickly. She shivered. Betrayal, that was always the worst of times like these. Betrayal that she'd built a life of falsehoods. I thought you'd be back, said Mrs. Beelzebub, sprawled regally in the judgment day chair by the hat stand in the corner, near the benches where she could keep a watchful eye on the troublesome imps of the jury. Behind her, silent, watchful, the reaper stood. You were always weak to my suggestions. Mrs. Wilson smiled, grim and knowing. Was it weakness? She was as she was made, after all, in his image, from dirt and ribs and breathed in life. So whose weaknesses did she represent? 
It always struck her as wrong of God to put his only flaw in humanity, to let them mind it while he went off enjoying himself about his universe, and then to allow mankind to be judged for it. Free will seemed something of a cop-out when the flaw was programmed in. Eve took the apple from her pocket and raised it to the room. The firefalls on the wallpaper were stilled by its golden glow. The imps of the jury hushed. The dark hymns fell silent. The room seemed to close in around her until it was just she, Mrs. Beelzebub, and the apple. Mrs. Beelzebub leaned forward in the judgment chair. Tense, she looked. Do you still have that after all this time? she said. And I suppose Adam is here too? This time, Adam has nothing to do with it, said Mrs. Wilson. She saw concern creep across Mrs. Beelzebub's face, felt the devil's body tense. Surely you don't mean to use it, said Mrs. Beelzebub. That would be to both our ruins. Mrs. Wilson kissed the apple and then bit down hard into its flesh. The room shuddered. Plaster rained down from the ceiling. The damned wailed. The imps fell to the floor. The world spun slower in space. Time stopped. Let there be darkness, said Mrs. Wilson. And she saw that it was good. From the kitchen window at number eight, as she busied herself with lemon-clean dishes, Eve looked out on a different garden. It was golden and lush and new and warmed by a fledgling sun. There were no otherworldly cats and no vortices to beyond, shimmering blue and green in the corner by Mrs. Beelzebub's rickety wooden shed. There was no Mrs. Beelzebub, for a short while at least. Eve walked through into the living room, where Mrs. Rose and Mrs. Tate's teacups still lurked abandoned on the occasional table. Adam sulked in her armchair by the television. Beyond the front window, Sunshine Terrace was deserted. Empty. Just like the world. You could have saved me my floozy, said Adam. We had a good thing going on. She had Venus's breasts. Eve sighed. Maybe when God's done making replacement folk in his image, you'll find one like her. She reached for the photograph of Mr. Wilson set above the fireplace and brushed dust from its frame. A single tear welled in the corner of her eye. Would she be able to fashion Mr. Wilson just as he was? Would he be different this time? Would he still love her? And then again, maybe not. Adam shook his head. There'll never be breasts like that again. He stood and reached for his coat. What will you do now, Eve? Oh, I'll be here. Waiting, ready for the next time. The problem with him making folk in his image is that there'll always be a next time. Well, shall I take the apple? I could put it out for the bin men. Oh, I mean, when there are bin men, of course. Eve grinned. I think perhaps I'll keep it safe, this time, for humanity's sake. She opened the front door that Adam might shuffle out to his waiting sob. After all, she said, there's not that many more bites left in it.
This one had me smiling all the way through. Despite my personal beliefs, I really liked Mrs. Wilson. She has attitude, you know? Well, that brings us to the end of another show. Please remember that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and share it around, but don't change it or sell it. Have you had a chance to make a small donation to the District of Wonders yet? If not, buttons are on the website. Please pop over and give us a little something. I hope you enjoyed today's show. I'll be here next week, same time, same place. Until then, take it easy, keep smiling, and have an extra beverage just for me. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.